Welcome to the Olive Podcast. I'm Janine, Olive's Deputy Editor and Podcast Host, and each episode I'll be catching up with chefs, cuckoo writers and characters from the food scene in Britain and beyond. Join us each week to expand your food knowledge as our guests share 10 things we need to know about the specialist subject. And do listen out for our effortless bonus episodes where they also reveal their top cooking cheats, hacks and shortcuts. I'm delighted to welcome Samaya Osmani to the podcast today. Samaya is a food writer and the author of three books, Summers Under the Tamarind Tree, Mountain Berries and Desert Spice, and her latest, Andaza, a memoir of food, flavour and freedom in the Pakistani kitchen, which we're going to talk all about today. Welcome, Samaya. Hi, lovely to be here, Janine. Thank you so much for coming all the way from Glasgow. I know it wasn't just for us. You've got a book <laughs> launch as well. well Thank you. Um, first of all, could you tell us a bit about yourself and your journey to becoming a writer? Because I know it wasn't just a straight line here, was it? No, it really was. And it was very convoluted. <laughs> um, I started off, I was living in Pakistan and I moved to Britain about 17 years ago. And I was a lawyer at the time. And I practiced law in Pakistan and I practiced law in London for about seven, six, seven years. And all the while I had a real passion for writing. I always enjoyed narrative writing and I used to just write things to myself. And then uh, food was like a real anchor for me growing up and especially growing up in Pakistan and my childhood was quite a sort of all about travel. So food was something that made me feel at home. And so I really reached into that memory of food and flavor and what it meant to feel that sense of belonging through food. Yeah. And I began writing and it just started off as a blog and articles for magazines and soon became a book proposal. And that's really when I decided to quit my legal career because I felt no passion for it and just follow my dreams for being to become a writer and an author. Wow. And how long did you write the blog for before the kind of book proposal became? I would say about maybe four to five years, yeah. something like that. Yeah. So you really put a lot of groundwork in there. Yeah, I felt like I needed to publish myself in a way yeah. that I felt confident about sharing personal stories and food and recipes and obviously yeah. that whole thing. But it felt like at the time, it was, you know, sort of the time when blogs are really uh, becoming quite big yeah. and it was a good way of pushing myself out of my comfort zone to actually you know, even if no one published my writing initially, I was putting it out there for the world to read. And I felt like that gave me that consistency to write. And it is really where my writing, you know, sort of blossomed. Yeah, I love it. So today we're going to talk all about your new book. It's a memoir. It's, a, it's quite a personal book. It's very deep and there's lots and lots of storytelling as well as beautiful recipes in there. But you're also going to tell us a little bit about Pakistani cooking, because obviously it's quite unique and um, maybe not so well known here. Let's talk first about Pakistani cuisine. As you said, it's actually a relatively new cuisine, even though the influences are centuries old. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, I think that when people think of Pakistani cuisine, they think it's the same as, you know, the rest of the Indian subcontinent. Yeah. And they wouldn't be wrong to say that it's not similar. But the reason why Pakistani food is so unique is, number one, it was a country that was forced politically to become a country. So there was obviously a lot of migration of people across the borders. And as a result of that, you know, everyone who migrates, I mean, we know that migration is one of the 
fastest way of cuisines developing and changing. Yeah. So that basically happened in 1947 when we divided from India. And when all the Muslim Indians moved to the land that is Pakistan, they, you know, they came to part of India that was there for centuries. So, you know, all the provinces that make up Pakistan today were there for centuries. And they were very strategically placed because in the north we had Central Asia, China, and on the, the west we had, uh, you know, Afghanistan and Iran. So there was all these flavors that had yeah. already been trickling in. And then you have these vast migration of people who are bringing their cooking techniques and their flavors and their heritage, and they're bringing it on a land where there's already their own flavors. So then there's a sudden explosion of a new cuisine. And that, to me, would be the best way to describe Pakistan, a real confluence of South Asia, because it brought everything from the Muslim Indian cuisine to the local people that lived in the parts of uh, you know India that became Pakistan. So yeah. it's difficult to say that it's you know, not an ancient cuisine, but it's also, yeah. it is quite a new cuisine. It's <laughs> yeah. it's a hundred, you know, it's not even a hundred years old yet, yeah. really. Um, so really, it's it's one of those beautiful things that, you know, marries everything, regional as well as uh, yeah. migration. And you for yourself, um, in the beginning bit of the book, your, your dad was um, a captain in the Merchant Navy, wasn't he? So you spent a, a good bit of your childhood actually at sea, which sounds quite mad. And your mum cooking in a tiny little makeshift galley kitchen that she'd set up for herself because she didn't want to eat the food that the um, the onboard like cook was cooking. I mean, that must have been quite a, an education in food in itself. It was. It, you know, my mother's always been one of those people who uh, doesn't feel like she's created home until she's cooking. Yeah. And it doesn't matter where she is, you know, really, she just had to cook. And it was quite a, an alternative childhood for me to grow up as an only child, you know, picked up at, you know, under a, not even a year old. And my father was just, you know, he left, he'd resigned his commission in the Navy and joined yeah. the Merchant Navy to sort of make some money because his, his, his dream was always to become a lawyer and he wanted to sort of okay. fund that legal uh, education. So, you know, he went to sea for quite a while, for about 10 years. And I sort of traveled on and off with my mum. And on the ships, there was always very typical, most of the ships we, we sailed on were Pakistan-owned, um, and you know, shipping, merchant shipping vessels. And, you know, the kitchens and the, the main mess always had typical Pakistani dishes that the cooks on board would cook. Yeah. My mother hated them. She got bored of them. She felt like she needed to have, in the book I say, she needed to feel that sovereignty in the kitchen, yeah. you know, and, and that's what she felt by getting that little frying pan, which, by the way, still exists somewhere really? in, the, <laughs> in my mother's drawer. Um, <clears throat> and it was this electric frying pan with a rickety little thing, which she would plug in and created this little galley kitchen in one oh. of the little sections in the, in the captain's cabin. And she would cook there. And she would cook everything on there. Like she would make biryanis and, you know, cakes and everything on oh. there. Um, and she loved collecting cookbooks from every port we went to. She loved going to markets in every port we went to. She would she would hound the agents, you know, the ship agents, uh, wives, if they were could speak English or even didn't know remotely any English. She'd still say, please tell me your <laughs> recipes wherever we went. So it was always something I was exposed to. Yeah, I love that. And, and when you talk in the book, you do talk about meat being quite a, an important thing in Pakistani cooking and obviously it's it's yeah it's quite use meat quite often but you also say it's not all about the meat yeah I mean meat is you know whenever people think about Pakistani dishes they always think about lamb chops and yeah. you know legs of lamb being cooked in those delicious spices and yes definitely we are a huge meat eating yeah. uh, culture you know and especially beef and mutton 
But saying that, not, you know, meat is always expensive and a lot of people can afford meat. And so on a regular basis, we have a real love for seasonal vegetables because we eat everything quite seasonally. So it's really simple. It's not as extravagant with loads of coconut and stuff. It depends on the region in Pakistan, yeah. really. But it's actually quite simple and there's lots of spices and um, lots of herbs, uh, lots of simplicity in how they're cooked. Depends, again, on the region, but vegetables are a big thing and lentils, definitely. Yeah. There's you know, dal would be would be the staple in most yeah. homes. Sometimes the only meal. Yeah, I spotted a really lovely recipe for lentil dumplings. Yeah, that are served with loads of different like there's a there's a a tamarind sauce, yogurt, ginger, mint, coriander. Slit, or just it just sounds fantastic. Is that would that be a sort of typical? recipe too or that, is that just something that you that is actually no that's actually a daybaras which are a very much a um, street food oh, and okay. eaten sort of room temperature yeah. so or cool really and uh, they are served on you know in, in on the streets but my mom would always make them and was her sort of you know go-to dish when she yeah. was celebrating especially during Ramadan and and Eid uh, we'd always have these and they are a delicious recipe because you can have them with anything yeah. you don't have to have them with like a Pakistani meal you could just have them on their own as a snack yeah. or serve them you know with your tea or or just have them as a little snack in, in the morning or even have them for breakfast so they're Beautiful. actually quite delicious yeah let's talk a bit about layering spices and how that works in building a dish because I know that's something you're really fond of I am. And it's one of those things that I suppose I didn't really realize I knew how to do. And it goes back to the title of the book, which is Andaza, which is to, you know, cook with estimation and, and to trust your senses. And one of the things that whenever I, you know, went back to trying to recreate a recipe, mm. I realized that the one thing my family or the women in my family, and especially my mom did, was that she would layer spices on every level. And I think that's a very unique sort of Pakistani way of building flavor, yeah. which is that your base oil uh, that cooks your dish should be flavored with whole spices. And a lot of people, you know, buy ready-made powdered mixes or powdered spices. I mean, they're nice, but they give you like a one-dimensional flavor. Yeah. So when you, because every spice has essential oil within it. So when you extract the essential oil, you enhance the flavor of the spice. You bring out everything that it has to give in terms of, you know, in sense of flavor and, and aroma. So when you heat your oil and you add whole spices in it, it releases one layer of your, your base layer of your spice, which then envelopes everything. And then while you're cooking, you can add, you know, some powdered spice. So that adds another layer. But then and your ginger, garlic and onion, your flavor enhancers also add a, you know, sort of an yeah. intensity of layer of flavor. And the more you cook them, the more you extract flavor out of them. And then, then you add your main dish, whether it's chicken or meat or vegetable. And then when you finish off your dish, you have this like final, uh, you know, you have this final opportunity to add an extra layer of spice, which my mother was you know, and it still is very adamant. She's like, you cannot serve that yet because I have to garnish it. And our garnishes, at least in my home, would be lots of fresh herbs, you know, slivers of ginger, yeah. mint, um, homemade garam masala sprinkled on top yeah. just to add that tiny bit of like extra flavor. So you're then building on the on the layers again. So when you actually take a bite of that dish, you get an explosion of layers of flavor. I love that. <laughs> and there was this really nice point in the book where you said... Um, your mum used to taste the whole spices before she added them to work out how much to actually add. So this all comes back to the, you know, the sensory cooking yeah. and sort of not cooking by measurement because, because it, 
even within the recipe she was making, she would change it depending on how the spice was tasting. I mean, that's fascinating to me. Yeah, it's because, you know, she would usually be able to tell, oh, is the spice a little bit old? Has it lost some of its aroma? Okay, if it has, then maybe I need to add double. And if it was really strong and fresh, then she'd just have, you know, maybe add less of it. Yeah. So she would kind of gauge how much she would need just by tasting the spice. Uh, and that is something, you know, she does a lot of, even with when she's cooking, she'll taste it quite a bit. And yeah. I mean, that's something that most chefs do is taste the food. But it's interesting that she would always taste the spices before she added them, which I found really odd. But now when I look at it, I see, <laughs> I understand why she did it. Yeah. Because a lot of the times when we were traveling, especially on the ships, we didn't always have everything fresh. And yeah, sometimes so things would be know. lying. Yeah, yeah. So she would always do that. Yeah. So let's talk a bit about sensory cooking and, you know, what that means to you, because obviously that's a big foundation of the book, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things that I really realized meant everything to me because growing up, all you ever hear in Pakistan is, you know, anyone wants to share a recipe, they're like, well, there's a bit of this, a bit of that, a bit of this, cook it with andaza. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just like they cook it with andaza. There's no written recipe, and we're always expected to use andaza. It's like as if everyone in Pakistan is equipped with this talent of andaza because it is the way that you're meant to cook. Yeah. But it's not a talent. It's really just everyone has the ability to gauge yeah. what and how much they should put of something. And it, you know, a couple of things play a role in it. And one is obviously memory. Um, you know, because if you have a memory of a dish, you know what it might taste like. So you know what the end result will be. Yeah. The other is uh, trusting your senses. So if you have a really good taste, sense of taste and smell, then you're able to gauge things as well. But then when you're cooking something you've never cooked before, you know, how on earth do you cook it? And I think it's about trusting yourself. Now, yeah. no matter where you are, a beginner with spices or, you know, quite advanced or or, or anything like that, you just learn to trust yourself yeah. like even if you don't know if it's going to be right you just put a little bit and then you taste it and say oh actually yeah. I could do a little bit more so it's about just letting go of the fear and so that is something that I realized when I began cooking more was that when I let go of the fear of not making it correctly then I began to experiment and things sometimes would go wrong and sometimes they'd be okay but I think <laughs> we're so afraid yeah and we we you know we lean into written recipes and when they don't work we're like well that didn't work yeah that's because, rubbish that recipe yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like why don't you just trust Try, yourself yeah. you know and that is an incredible uh, not talent but it's something that we're all gifted with it, people used to cook without recipes for centuries so you know it's something that's sort of lost because everything's become so yeah. uh, you know documented and and we expect things to just work because we trust other people but we stop trusting ourselves yeah. I think that you you mentioned taste in there and I think that's a huge part of you know, something that we've lost. You'll even see on programs on the TV, you know, like competitions like MasterChef and they'll say, have you tasted it? And they haven't, and they're sort of doing it by rope. They're not tasting it as they go along. And, yeah. and I think that's just, a, it's just a very simple thing to keep on tasting your food as you're cooking yeah. and then moving it forward, you know? Yeah, I mean, I do, I have to say, I'm a little bit guilty of not tasting until things are ready now, but that's also because I trust the way they you taste now. That you do, yeah. But when I'm trying something completely new, if it's a yeah. recipe I've never made, I will definitely trust it. I will keep tasting it yeah. and make it, oh, is that not right? Or does that, you know, and sometimes, you you know, like unfamiliar things, if I pick up a cuisine I don't know much about, yeah. I'll, I won't know how it's meant to taste, but I know what I like. Yeah. I know how I, I know, right, I'm going to stop there because that's too salty or too spicy or too herby, and I'll stop there. But yeah, you don't get that until you keep testing. Yeah. On the flip side of that, sometimes 
obviously if something's got to cook for two hours, it's going to taste quite different in two hours time as well. So, yeah, so trust the process as well. There's a nice bit in the book where you find one of your mum's old diaries and there's loads of different recipes from friends, but no, and you're like, but there's no measurements here. And she's like, oh, come on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That must have been great to find that. Like. Yeah, I still have that. And we made a whole copy of these and gave them out to all the friends, daughters and sons and everybody. So there would be, you know, they would be sort of immortalized recipes. And it was like, it was funny because there were all these amazing recipes and all, they were literally just ingredients and a yeah. few steps Yeah. until it's done. Yeah. When it feels right, <laughs> uh, uh, when it's nicely brown, yeah. what does that even mean, yeah. mum? Oh, you know what it means. It means it looks right. I'm like, well, I have no idea what you mean. But I think that you do. You do know when something feels yeah. right. You know, if something's looking a bit raw, when your onions are looking a bit soggy, you know they're looking soggy. Yeah. You know, I mean, you can't really go, I mean, it says it's going to be looking nice and brown. You know what nice and brown would look yeah. like. So I think it's about, you know, so a lot of those recipes I tried to decipher and I just sort of played around with measurements and kind of figured it out. Yeah. A couple of things I didn't know. Um, you said that um, barbecue is massively popular in Pakistan. I had no idea. <laughs> yeah, it's a big thing, and especially in uh, the part of Pakistan that I come from, which is Karachi on the coast um, right. of, in the south. And a lot, see a lot, barbecue was not such a big thing in the subcontinent before the Arabs came okay. into the subcontinent. Yeah. And it was because they really were into their barbecuing and grilling and they kind of brought this techniques in. And I think a lot of it kind of seeped through the, you know, the Persians as well. They, they A lot of that came through. And the Mongols, of course, they yeah. brought that into. Oh, yeah, and, and it was just, it's become so hugely popular. That every street food is, you know, most of the street food places are barbecued. Tikkas, kebabs, yeah. you know, it's it's incredible. It smell, And it smells amazing when you walk past most of these places. There's always this smell of coal and meat and spices everywhere. Yeah, I was, t I was talking to someone, I can't remember which podcast it is, and we were talking about how... The, the magic of the kebab and how it goes through every single cuisine, you know, because the idea of just putting meat or veg on a stick is such an easy way to cook. And I think it came from, I think they said like historically it was from like, you know, soldiers being on the hoof and having to be able to set up a small fire and cook something really, really quickly. Yeah. But yeah, you've got a recipe for a, is it chicken boti tikka? Yeah. And the thing when inspired by an open air barbecue restaurant that you used to go to with your family. And that that one looks incredible. Definitely going to cook that. <laughs> yeah. um, and then another influence, you mentioned it before, um, you said it's got a lot of Central Asian and Chinese influences. So yeah. what kind of foods do they... So if you go up to the north of Pakistan, around the area of Baltistan and Hunza, which sort of, you know, borders Central Asia and yeah. China, you will see that there's a lot of noodles, a lot of dumplings, oh, okay. um, a lot of sort of, a lot of Balti cooking that you hear about in, you know, you say it comes from Birmingham, but, <laughs> um, but it, the Balti style of cooking really is the style of cooking in a wok. And balti itself is like a bucket. Balti, the yeah. word bucket, it means bucket. And a lot of that style came from that Chinese influence oh, okay. in the border. And it's a very fluid border. And so the, the the way of cooking was just really quick stir fry cooking, which then obviously took spices and yeah. lots of local ingredients. So there's definitely that kind of 
you know, that kind of influence up there. And and there's a less, there's a use of less spices up there. Right. So it's definitely more mellow. It's more local things because it's so cut off from the rest of the country. They don't, you know, import too much stuff from the South. There's a lot more, you know, there's a lot of influence of the Central Asian dumplings, the mumtu, which kind of came through uh, the silk route and and the area being, you know, the, the, the traders yeah. would kind of take these dried dumplings that they would steam up and eat. So that kind of became a part of that. You would find them as a street food and you wouldn't find that as a street food in the South or in, in Punjab or anything like that. You would yeah. only find that up in that area. They also have lots of noodle soups and they do lots of soups and they do hand-pulled noodles, like a lot of the Chinese hand-pulled oh, wow. noodles. You'll find like more local ingredients in it, like local berries and capers and stuff in it. But it'll be very simple. There'll be no, you know, like people in the South don't like the food in the North because we all <laughs> like our spice and our chili and our barbecue. Yeah. And you go up to the northern parts and the food's very different. It's got like, you know, like filled chapatis or pies with cottage cheese, walnuts, um, you know, very different food. Very different. Wow, yeah. that's great. Um, let's talk a bit about hot and cold food and what, what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> so if you look into Ayurvedic, you know, medicine and also Yunani medicine, which is the Indo-Persian oh, okay. medicine, there's a whole idea of how different foods have temperaments okay. and those temperaments affect your body. Now, I'm not a, you know, Yunani doctor or what we call Hakims in, in they're the Muslim version of sort of the Ayurvedic right, medicine, I'm similar, really, yeah. but different in some ways. And it is all about ingredients or spices or anything that you use to cook that has, uh, you know, they, they have a temperament that's cold or like milk is quite cooling or yogurt's quite cooling to the body yes. or certain spices are quite warm and hot. And what they do is they change the temperament of your body and therefore your body doesn't, you know, react as well. So for example, yeah. if it's really, really hot, you want to drink something like lassi, which is quite cooling yeah. because it's got yogurt in it and it cools the body down. So a similar way in things that you eat, as in foods that are cooked, um, normally they say that all the things that nature wants us to eat that are good for you at the time of season uh, do grow at that time. So, for example, carrots grow in the winter, or they're quite warming, you know, things like that. So it's interesting. It's just working oh, okay. with the seasons yeah. and it's just nature has already provided what's hot and what's cold. Okay. So it's interesting. That is really fascinating. And I've not heard of y Yunani before. Yeah. So it's the, it's Indo-Persian medicine. It's been there for centuries and centuries. And, um, and usually the, the people who practice Yunani medicine are called Hakims. Okay. And it's all about the balancing. It's basically. a balancing. Yeah. yeah. I love that. Um, we were going to talk a little bit about sweet things because you said mm -hmm. it's not typically dessert, but is, is it mithai? Or mith mithai. Sorry, mithai. Never get that right. Mitai. I know Mitai boxes are very popular, aren't they? Weddings and birth announcements and you know, birthdays and any occasion basically for a big box of sweets. Oh yeah. There's this, you don't you just don't need an yeah. excuse for Mitai. Um, yeah, Mitai is an interesting thing because it's one of those things that is always distributed whether you pass your exams or you know and something great happens it's like oh we must have some matai <laughs> you know i love anyone wants an excuse to eat matai um but the beauty of it is the array of matais there's so mm. many like it's you go into a matai shop and you're just your your senses are completely overblown <laughs> and you just you know you have so much to choose from you know, the, the, the thing about them is that they are very cel celebratory, but they're also really quite filling. So we don't yeah. really eat them at the end of meals, really. We normally eat them 
to celebrate or to have with tea or coffee yeah. or something like that. Well, mainly it's always tea in Pakistan. And, you know, we also have desserts that are, you know, like a carrot halva and yeah. certain halvas that we have. They're usually always eaten at the end of celebration meals, like weddings, oh, okay. or not really eaten at the end of meals, but eaten for chai, like having chai in the afternoon yeah. with your with your family, or just eaten for breakfast or just enjoyed in the middle of the day. We don't really have a sit-down three-course meal where the dessert will be the end. I think it's become a little bit like that because of Western influences, but yeah. traditionally it really wasn't. And in many, many parts of the traditions, if you look back into the Muslim sort of traditions of eating, desserts were always eaten in the beginning of meals. And and they oh, say really? it's something, you know, the Yunani medicine practitioners would tell you that it's something to do with how sugar helps digestion. Okay. And I don't know personally a lot about it, but I recently <laughs> was reading that's a lot to do with, we have a dish called zarda, which is sweet rice, a saffron sweet rice. And it's sometimes in some cultures still, it's in some Muslim cultures actually eaten before the meal as a sort of a pre-meal thing. Okay. Uh, so there is a little <laughs> bit of that. So it's all eaten backwards. Yeah. yeah, right at the beginning of the book, you've got a lovely um, saffron and black cardamom fudge. Would, would that be a mitai or is that just something that's a little bit more served with? That is a recipe of fudge, just good old British yeah. fudge that my mother used to make on the ship. And there's obviously a story attached to that in the first chapters to when I remember her first making it for me when when I had a terrible cadet on board made me throw my I know, little I teddy that. bear I, away. Honestly, really, I, I could barely read that. You made you throw your teddy <laughs> over the, the ship. <laughs> it was really funny because somebody on Instagram the other day said to me, said, we're going to knit you one and I send know. it to you. I was like, oh my goodness, that's so sweet. Um, and that, well, you know, I was very young in those days. But it's that fudge, that fudge my mum used to make was just probably out of some magazine that yeah. she got. But she always added a little bit of, you know, something or, sort of you know, saffron to it or, or yeah. yeah, something to make it hers. So it's kind of a cross between your British fudge and a little bit of flavor from the mitai. So yeah. it actually is a combination. It is totally a recipe that my mother was looking at that recipe the other day and saying, well, I don't think I made it like that. Yeah. I'm like, well, mom, this is my memory <laughs> of it. Don't go into what you remember. This is what I yeah, remember. Yeah. But the reason she made it was because you yes. were very upset and it, yeah. and it did for those moments make you feel better and kind of remind you of home a little bit. You and, did, yeah. yeah. So lovely. Um, you're also going to share about how, you, how you'd how you eat in Pakistan communally with hands and sharing platters and everyone at one level, which sounds lovely. Yeah, I mean, food is such a big deal in Pakistan. You know, things, we stop working, we'll, we'll you know, we'll stop, everyone will stop tracks to eat. Uh, you know, anytime you have any food, people will come running to eat it. But the beauty of it all is... Uh, traditionally, food is always served on the floor on a dastarkhan, which is a floor mat, you know, big tablecloth, yeah. but floor cloth, and everyone sits together and eat. But of course, now we sit on tables. But that is a traditional way of eating. But the beauty of the traditional way of eating is eating in one big platter. So if there's a biryani, everyone would eat a big platter of biryani. Yeah. Everyone would eat with their hands, and they'll take a little bit on the side, on the on the side of the big platter, and eat. And it doesn't matter who you are, what your background is. Everyone will sit and eat at the on the floor together. And yeah. that, you know, you can see that when you go into markets and it's one o'clock and, you know, people have said their prayers and they've come back yeah. to eat. They will literally, it doesn't matter whether the boy cleans the toilets or he's the guy who owns the shop. 
they'll all sit together on the yeah. floor and eat. And I think that is something I probably didn't ex- appreciate. But when I go back now and I watch that and I'm like, wow, that is special. And you said people often close the business yeah, and yeah, just sit down totally. and eat. Like- Sorry, can't come in. We're eating. <laughs> but I'm here to buy this and I'll spend thousands of rupees. <laughs> Don't care. We're eating. We could take a lens of that, couldn't we, <laughs> for sure. Um, yeah, I just want to talk a little bit about your um, your grandmothers, your your nanny mummy and your daddy mummy. Is that how you say it? Yeah. No, yeah. Daddy, um, they they sound fascinating and they obviously were such a massive influence on the way that you you um, cook yourself now and, and you, the, the way that you learned how to cook. And what I found lovely about them was when you were describing how they cooked quite differently with the same ingredients. But like I think daddy, mummy would be, um, she would do much more intricate cooking. Is that right? Because of how where she was from mm-hmm. and... and um, and, and Nanny Mummy would be a, a lot more simple kind of. I, I just love that. Could you tell us a bit about them? Because yeah. they sounded like such great characters. They were. And, you know, in my head, they they just sort of pop in every now and then. And and it's just interesting because I did learn a lot of my cooking from my mom. But I think that the initial influences of how I saw how differently they both cooked, my, both my grandmothers cooked, really influenced my sort of understanding of belonging. Yeah. And so my my maternal grandmother, who I call Nani Mummy, um, Nani is usually the word for your maternal grandmother and Dadi for your paternal. Yeah. And so I used to call her Nani Mummy because I wanted to be different. Um, so I called her both my mummy and my grandmother. Okay. So it was funny. <laughs> it's kind of unusual. Um, and she was uh, originally from the Indian Punjab and her family migrated in 1947 to Pakistan. And so she had a very typical Punjabi, very sort of simple cooking, very much of the land and, you know, sort of how how to just cook things very simply. And in many ways, she wouldn't overcook her dishes. Like she would keep them quite simple and quite mellow. My daddy, my paternal grandmother, was from northern India, um, up near Lucknow in Uttar Pradesh. And they all migrated in 1947 to Pakistan, same area as my other grandmother. And her cooking was very intricate because she had this northern Indian um, uh, cuisine that is like, you know, very much about cooking things richly with lots of spices and literally taking out all the flavors by, well, not overcooking them, but it's about doing bhunai cooking, which is caramelization and taking out all the flavors and very intricate, very time consuming. And, uh, you know, I watched that and my mother basically loved that style of cooking. So when she got married (laughs) to my dad, she said, oh, I'm sick about my, my mother's cooking is very boring. I love your cooking, she told her mother-in-law. And so she learned everything from my grandmother. Um, but, you know, then she kind of combined her styles, which is what my mom's cooking is. But that that is what I grew up with is, you know, one side cooking completely different. Yeah. And then, see, this is what's fascinating about Pakistan because people came from different parts and bought these yeah, cooking techniques things, and they yeah. became a part of our cuisine. Yeah. And it's what I grew up with. And And I, you know, I look at myself and... I'm a first-generation Pakistani. I was born post-1947. I was born in the 70s. You know, I was I was one of the first kind of generation of Pakistanis. Yeah. So I grew up with all influences. Yeah, I love that. Um, I mean, the book is, as I said, it, it's, it's such a personal story to you. You call it like a coming-of-age story, and it really is. It really takes you through like your early life and, you know, right up until when you left Pakistan and came to England and studied. Um but honestly, like the book, the recipe's absolutely beautiful. And um, it's been great having you come and share it with us today. I just wanted to um, to mention as well that you have a website and you do, is it that you do writing mentoring on there? Can you tell us a I bit do. about that? Yes, I, I 
basically when I started writing and I realized that I had, I really wanted to mentor other writers. Yeah. And, you know, it's all about just people who want to write nonfiction. It's not necessarily only Kirk, but of course I can help people with cookery as well. But I mentor a lot of aspiring authors. I also run a, a online membership for writers okay. where I help and support them grow their careers as writers and just getting confidence in writing. So that's something I love and it's it's become a real passion of mine to teach people to, you know, sort of if I could do it, anyone can do it. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> and people can find that at samayaosmani.com. That's yep. your website. Yes. And on Instagram, you are samayaosmani. I'll put these in our description so people can uh, link to that. And what have you got coming up? I know it's book launch week as we speak about your book launches tomorrow. Um, what, what are you going to be doing? Uh, yeah, I'm really excited about my book launch. I'm also very apprehensive and scared yeah. because this new <laughs> book is coming out and it's so personal and there's so much there. Uh, but what I'm really excited about is this route of narrative writing that yeah. I'm on. And I think it's opened up a whole new world for me. And it's given me a lot of more ideas about books that I want to write in the future. I'm presently working on an idea for a book, which is, again, a nonfiction, a little bit of memoir, a little bit of history, a little bit of definitely lots of food cool. and so I'm really I'm kind of working on that but it's really hard when you're kind of promoting one book yeah uh, but I'm really excited about that yeah, just so. enjoy this one yes, and get it out yes, there I know so if people want to get the book it's called Andaza a memoir of food flavor and freedom in the Pakistani kitchen and it's out now well yes. it will be out when this podcast yeah. out for people to buy thank you so much again for coming to chat to us today Samaya it's been brilliant thank you so much for having me thank you for listening to the Olive podcast for recipes and more information, head to olivemagazine.com. Do remember to listen out for our effortless bonus episodes where our guests reveal their best cooking cheats, hacks and shortcuts. And don't forget to subscribe at iTunes, Acast, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.